Shalom everyone and welcome to our new weekly Soul of the Parsha class. We are, we are now starting, we're going into the week in which we're reading two parashot, just like last week. This time the parashot are called Acharei Mot and Kedoshim. And as always, we're talking about the first segment of the first parasha. We're, this year we're dedicating to just the opening of the parasha. We want to open the parasha and just look at the first few verses and see what they tell us. And from that opening, very often it has to do with the name of the parasha. We learn something very fundamental, very deep, very important about the message of the entire parasha. And we want to see how it connects to our lives, our spiritual inner work. And our topic for today is the topic of spiritual ecstasy. There are many people, once their spiritual spark is lit, once they're connected to spirituality and they discover the light of God and the light of the soul and the light of the spiritual space that opens up when you close down a little bit, you shut down your eyes to the external world and you discover the inner world and the world of the spirit, then there's this passion and there's this uh, pull to to go all the way into this realm of the spiritual and to sort of burn up spiritually. And, and this is a very, very, very powerful uh, m- motivational force when going into this whole world of spiritual work, of serving God. There's something about this world that is finite and that is very material and that's very crude, that if you think that's all there is to life, then you you accept it. But once someone, and it can happen when you're young, it can happen when you're old, when someone suddenly realizes that everything about the material world is just a very shallow, very superficial aspect of the whole spiritual universe that lies beyond the material world, the effect is sometimes overwhelming, and it can make you drunk with excitement, and it can lead you to a kind of desire to go ecstatic. Ecstatic means you're coming out of your body, you're coming out of your regular way, mode of life. And basically what the, what this desire is, it's the desire to sort of melt into godliness melt into the spiritual world, and cease to be here. And not everyone experiences this so powerfully, like I described it. Sometimes it's more subtle. There are many, many degrees, and we're all very different. But this is something that's familiar, at least to some extent, to anyone who, for whom the word spirituality and the word faith and the word, uh, you know, higher worlds or realms it means anything. If it means something to you, then it's not completely alien to you, what I just described. So this, this, this pull or this temptation or this force that's moving, operating within us, that wants us to sort of go up in flames and like a fire, like a, like a flame that wants to go up and leave the candle and leave whatever it is that holds it down and wants to 
go up into the higher realms, this is the, the what we want to talk about. And we want to talk about how to give room to this kind of movement within us, to this kind of desire. It's something that has a lot of place and it's very important, but also how to balance it, how to how to complement this movement with the counter movement, which is the movement of the return and the return of the soul back to its body, back to the physical realm. This, of course, is called in Kabbalah and Hasidut, and it's a term that originates in, in the Tanakh, in the Bible. It's called Ratzo Vashov, or run and return. The run of the soul is the, the will of the soul to reunite with its divine source. So this is the movement of running upwards. And we may not ex- consciously experience this. As I said, it, we need to awaken to the reality of God and spirituality in order to consciously experience it. But the soul absolutely experiences it. And that's its primal, in many ways, uh, movement. It wants to run back up. It longs to reunite with God. It misses God. It's far away from God. It's in, almost in a state of exile when it's here in this body. So when we connect to our souls and we remember our souls, immediately we have, to a certain degree, to a certain extent, it depends on our, our general makeup, which is very individual, but we experience this feeling of our soul wanting to run back to its source. So this is the movement of running, the running of the soul. But there's also the opposite movement, which is the returning of the soul. Although the run is also a kind of return. It's return to the divine source. But here we're talking about returning in the sense of returning to this world. Returning to the body, returning to the family, returning to uh, responsibilities, returning to everything that connects us to the material world. And this is the, the basic rhythm or tempo or cycle of the soul is that it needs to constantly be in a state of running and returning. And also, as we'll see, there's also a kind of experiencing both of them simultaneously. And that's something we want to also understand later on. So that's our topic. How is this connected to the beginning of this, uh, of Parashat Acharemot, the first of the two parashot we're reading this Shabbat? So basically, Acharemot, this parasha, begins with the rules and instructions that have to do with Yom Kippurim, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is the 10th day of Tishrei. It's the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. It's a day in which uh, it's, it's not just a Shabbat, it's called Shabbat Shabbaton. It's, an, it's the holiest day, it's the holiest time of the year in which we fast and we dive and we pray five prayers during the day, which is more than any other day. A regular day has three prayers, a holiday has four prayers, Yom Kippurim has five prayers, and of course it atones. It's a, it's a day that for each one individually and for all of the Jewish people, and in fact also has to do with atoning for all of mankind, because it's ten days after Rosh Hashanah, the new year, which is the day in which Adam 
the first man was created, so it's really the birthday of mankind. So on the 10th day of that month, we want to atone, and we want to really go back to our purest place. We've accumulated sins and blemishes and difficulties, and we've distanced ourselves from God throughout the year, and then on the Day of Atonement, we go back to our purest of places, a place that's absolutely clean, and everything that has to do about the day, there are many, many details, it's all about returning to that place and completely letting go of any, everything that's evil or negative within us. So this is the opening of this parsha. Haraimot has to do with the instructions given to Aaron, the priest, the, the head priest, uh, everything that he has to do on the day. It's a very long, complicated day. He's, he's doing a lot of things, operating and giving sacrifices, and everything that has to do with that day. However, the first two verses suddenly bring us back, pull us back, a few parashat backwards, to Parashat Shmini. Parashat Shmini was the day of the inauguration of the tabernacle. After the Shmini is the eighth day, there were the seven days of preparation, and then there was the eighth day in which the, t- the tabernacle was inaugurated, and fire came down, or came out of the Holy of Holies, and the first sacrifices were made and being consumed by divine fire. And after that event, uh, a, a tragedy, or what appeared to be a tragedy, happened. Two out of the four sons of Aaron, Aaron had four sons, they were all supposed to carry on his duty and to, to participate in his duties and also to carry on after he passes away. Two of the sons, their names were Nadav, and Avihu, they sacrificed a certain amount of incense. They went into the inner altar. There's an outer altar and an inner altar in the tabernacle. They went into the inner altar and they sacrificed incense that was not commanded upon them to do so. And this was called a strange fire. They put the incense and they burnt it themselves. And this was, they were not commanded to do this, and it was called a strange fire. You can read Esh Zara, Esh Zara, you can read it as a strange fire, or a foreign fire, or a, an alien fire. It's something that was out of the regular commandments. And then, again, fire came out of the Holy of Holies, but this time, not in order to consume the sacrifice, that, which happened in the earlier part of the day, but it consumed them. They were consumed and killed by this fire. And this was, of course, a shocking event. It was the, the festive day. The first day was the first day of Nisan. It was the inauguration of the tabernacle. And this incredible, frightening event happened that the two sons of Aaron, the fire came out and consumed them. And to make it clear, apparently, so it seems, that they did something very, very wrong. This event is later, we're reminded of that event three more times. There's the description of that event that was in Parashat Shmini, a few weeks ago. And then three more times, the Torah takes trouble to remind us that this happened. And the first is in this parasha. So the opening, and this is why this parasha is called Acharei Mot following the death, 
following the death of Nadav and Avihu, the two sons of Aaron. So very interestingly, the beginning of this parasha, before we go into the instructions about the Day of Atonement, we're reminded about the sin of, or the apparent sin of Nadav and Avihu, and the fact that they were consumed by a fire. And then it says, and the, the explanation the Torah gives for reminding us of this, is that now moving to Aaron and to the work they needs to do on the Day of Atonement, in which, by the way, he goes into the Holy of Holies. The Day of Atonement is a day in which the, the most sacred place in space and the most sacred moment in time and the most sacred person, they're all united, they all come together. It's the, the chief priest, a Kohen the grand priest, he is like the apex of Jewish souls. He goes into the Holy of Holies, which is the holiest place, at, at the holiest of days. So it's the dimensions of space and the dimension of time and the dimension of the human soul. According to the Book of Formation, there are three kinds of dimension. So the holiest points come together. So Aaron, coming into the Holy of Holies, on that day, he's warned, he's reminded of what happened to his sons, and he's reminded not to do what they did, not to make the same mistake that they did, so that he may live. So the first verse in this parasha reminds us of their death, acharei mot, following the death of the two sons. And then the second verse tells us that if Aaron should do everything properly, he will not die. This is the second verse. And then from the third verse onwards, all the instructions for the Day of Atonement begin. So we want to... So we, we're suddenly, we're going back to an incident that we didn't talk about uh, when, we, when I gave the class for Shmini, because we're talk, just talking about the opening segment, and, and the incident of Nadav and Avihu was not in the opening segment. So, but now, there's, now is a good chance to understand what was the story there, and why is this story now recalled, and what are we to learn from this. So this is very, very interesting what we're going to learn now. So, basically, it, it, we would think that the sin is simple, that it makes sense. But really, it's not clear at all why Nadav and Avihu, what they did wrong. In fact, it's so unclear that Chazal, the Jewish sages, the rabbis, they have about 12 different answers for what happened. And it's it's uh, it's a mystery. So they have an explanation that they were drunk. Why? Because just after it happened, the Torah says you mustn't go into the tabernacle when you after you drank wine. So they say, well, that must have been their sin. But that's just one opinion. Another opinion is that they didn't ask anyone. They didn't ask for permission, or even that they didn't work. Together, even if they would have done so together, it would have been okay, but they, they, they were two sons. They did it separately, and each one had its own individual sort of drive, but they didn't work together, and that was the problem. And another, another opinion is that they went all the way into the Holy of Holies, and that that was the problem. And another opinion is that everything was okay, but the only problem was that they weren't married. And then there's another opinion that says, no, even if they were married... It would have been okay had they had children, but they didn't have even children. So that was the problem. And another opinion is that they didn't have any clothes on. 
which is very strange. They went in naked. Maybe it goes together with the idea that they were drunk. And there are even more answers. So, a lot of different explanations. Of course, all of the explanations are, they all assume that they did something wrong, that it was a sin, and that the fire coming out of the Holy of Holies and consuming them was a punishment. So, this is assumed, but it doesn't actually, specifically, expressly say so. The Torah does not explicitly say that they sinned. It says that they gave this instance that they were not commanded to do, right? That it was a foreign or alien fire, something it wasn't, or strange, something they, they didn't, and that they weren't obligated to do so. That's what the Torah says. And then the Torah says that the fire came out and consumed them. But the Torah never explicitly says that it was a sin. And this allows one of the most, the deepest and most profound, most important commentators on the Torah, who is called Or HaChaim HaKadosh. His name was Chaim Ben Atar. He lived in Morocco in the 18th century. He was the contemporary of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidut. And the story goes that had they met, Mashiach would have come. That if the, only the two of them would have met, they would have brought Mashiach for sure, but they didn't meet. So they lived at the, at, at, uh, at the same time. Both of them uh, tried to uh, travel to Eretz Israel. The Baal Shem Tov didn't make it, and he went back to Europe. The Orachim HaKadosh did make it. He's buried in Jerusalem. And so he was, and he died, by the way, when he was 47, which is a bit frightening. I'm 47. It's a bit frightening when you think about everything that he was able to do during his life, and he wrote one of the lengthiest commentaries on the Torah. If you see Orachim HaKadosh, Every verse, it's unbelievable how much, how many things he can write about each and every verse. It's just unbelievable. So when he goes into this incident, and this is another very interesting thing, he doesn't explain it in Parashat Shmini. When it happened in Parashat Shmini, he doesn't go into it so much. Where does he bring all the explanations for what Nadav and Avihu did? In our parasha, which is just uh, here to remind us of what happened. You know, it's not the story itself. The story itself was in Shmini. Now it's just, it's just a reminder that it happened as uh, just before Aaron, their father, is about to go into the work of the Day of Atonement. However, the Orachim HaKadosh decides to put all the explanations for what Nadav and Avihu did in our parasha. So he gives several explanations for everything. He gives many, many different answers. But then he brings one of the, the most profound and mysterious and deep ideas that is actually quite revolutionary. And he says the following. He says, Nadav and Avihu did not sin at all. It wasn't a sin. And the fact that they were consumed by fire was not a punishment, because there was nothing to punish them for. They were absolutely righteous. And what they did, what happened to them, was what the Torah calls, in other instances, mitat neshika, death by divine kiss. What is a death by divine kiss? The Gemara says that there are, as we all know, there are many, many ways to die, and many forms of death and dying. And then the Torah says there are about 120-something, I don't remember the number. And then the Torah says that the best one 
the ideal way to die is mitat neshika, death by kissing, or death by divine kiss. And this is really, when you think it's like someone dying in their sleep, absolutely peacefully. Everyone would agree that this is the ideal way to go. And this is called, it's as if God kisses you. He doesn't hurt you, He doesn't give you an illness, He doesn't make you weak. He simply, he simply kisses you, it's the most gentle and pleasant of experiences, it's, all, it's an expression of love, and then you're taken away in this way. And it says that both Moshe and Aharon and Miriam, the three shepherds that took us out of Egypt, they all merited to die in this peaceful and beautiful way by God sort of kissing them. And then the Orach Haim HaKadosh says that it, the same happened for, Moshe, for Nadav and Avihu. Nadav and Avihu, the fire that came and consumed them, was because they came so close, so close to God. Then God took them, and He took them in this mystical, ecstatic way. If you look at the verses, the verse that opens up this parasha, right, we said that it's Acharei Mot, let me find it here. Yes, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they drew close to the presence of the Lord. After the death of the two sons of Aaron, as they drew close to God and died. The translation is actually not, not exact, but that's how it goes. So the Orachim HaKadosh says, they came very close. So you, you can the the verb bekorvotam can be read in two ways. It could be that they sacrificed before God. Here it doesn't mention the fact that they did so without being commanded to. It just says bekorvotam. So it could be that they sacrificed, and it could be that they drew close. And this is how the Orchim reads it. So he says they really became so close to God that he took them. And he says the big difference between death by divine kiss. Uh, that usually happens is that usually it's God coming down to kiss the righteous man that he wants to bring up. For Nadav and Avihu, it was the other way around. They drew, they went up to kiss God. Right? It's, it could be either God approaching the righteous person to kiss them, or it could be the righteous person approaching God to kiss him, so to speak. So it says it was a death by divine kiss, except... It was them doing the kissing, not him doing the kissing. They came so close to God that they came into this contact with God, and then they and then they were taken away because this is what happens when when you kiss God. And and then he says he says something extremely rare, not just rare in his own writings, but rare in all writings throughout the commentary of, uh, of, the, of the world of Torah. He says, and I'm going to do my best, my best to translate this, he says, um, they, they were very affectionate of, the holiness, of holiness, and they came, as we said, close to God, close to this kissing experience, and then he says, they felt that they were going to die. They felt, they knew that this was going to lead to their death, but they couldn't help themselves from getting closer to. And then he says, 
seven words. And it goes like this. To the devotion, the, I'm going to read it in Hebrew and then in English. So the best translation that I can come up with is cleaving or devoting, pleasantness, um, a sense of arevut is like a good taste or a good sound, something that's very pleasant to the ear or to the mouth. Yedidut is love. Chavivut is another word for love. Chashikut is a word for desire. Some, another, another version, it's neshikut, it's kissing. And then metikut is sweetness. So this is such a rare expression that he uses seven different words of ecstasy, of desire and love and passion and pleasure and joy and, 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 and sweetness until their souls came out of them. It's almost like going over those seven words it's almost like taking. It's almost like going over the seven powers of the soul. Right now, we're in the middle of the Sfirat Omer, the counting of the Omer. It's seven weeks, with seven days in each week. We go over the seven attributes of the heart. So he doesn't say so, and and I'm not the person to correspond it precisely to the to the Sfirot, but it it, it seems to suggest that they experience it so wholeheartedly, like in each and every compartment of their hearts. They felt this until finally they were pulled away and taken away. So this, as I said, is a very revolutionary piece of commentary. Now the Lubavitcher Rebbe takes this, took this, and expanded even further. And he said, he brings even more evidence for the fact that it can absolutely be read, this whole story, that they didn't sin at all. Of course, the Torah has 70 facets, there are many interpretations, according to most interpretations, they did sin, and nobody's taking that away. But he's taking, according to the approach that the Orachayim HaKadosh took, he brings even some more evidence, and then he starts going even deeper into that. And he says, you, after the, it happens, Moshe consoles Aaron. And then he uses the term Bikrovai Akadesh. He's quoting God and he's saying, I sanctify my home, my, my tabernacle, with those that are closest to me. This is a way of consoling Aaron. He says it's not that they were bad, it's the opposite. It's because he loved them so much. This is, of course, a major piece of evidence for this whole approach. So then the Rebbe says, the tabernacle was sanctified by them dying. So I'm not going to go into the whole idea, but I'm going to give you the, 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 you know, the outline and the bottom line. The bottom line, it says the following. It says the tabernacle, I mentioned this, has an external altar and an inner altar, an outer and an inner altar, two altars. They signify, they symbolize the exterior dimension of the heart, and the inner dimension of the heart. The tabernacle is a reflection of our own souls. So the external uh, altar is where the sacrifices are made. Sacrifices are very coarse, and it's flesh, the flesh of animals, and they're being sacrificed before God. And this symbolizes the work that we need to do on the external aspect of our hearts. We need to take our physicality, our materiality, the things of this world, and in which we feel very much separate from God, and we need to sacrifice them. In Hebrew, to sacrifice also means, as I said, to 
grow closer. So this is one aspect of the of the tabernacle and of divine service. The inner altar symbolizes the inner dimension of the heart, the deeper aspects, the deeper levels. Here, no sacrifices are made. It's forbidden. You don't bring an animal into the tabernacle inside and you, you don't put it all. What do you do on the inner altar? It's only incense. Incense means it's just a smell. It's, just, it's, it's, it's spiritual work. In Hebrew, the word for smell is almost identical to the word for spiritual. Reach and droach. Spirit and smell are the same consonants, just a little different vowel, and it's really very, very close. The smell is the most spiritual of all five senses, and it symbolizes spirituality. So the fact that the incense is brought means that it's, it, it stands for spiritual work. It's the inner level, the inner dimension of the heart. So then it says the following. He says, what happened was, that when Aaron did everything that he had to do on the eighth day, and the fire came out and took the sacrifices, then the tabernacle was sanctified. It was inaugurated. The, the Shekhinah, the presence of God, came down and dwelled in the tabernacle, but only on the external aspect of it. However, it was only when Adav and Avihu did what they did, that the, the second fire that came, and that when they gave incense, and they gave it inside, and it was on the inner altar. And the fire that came and consumed them was the sanctification of the tabernacle on the deeper level, on the inner level. It was, they did it. Aaron wasn't able to do it. They were able to do it, their sons. So the tabernacle was sanctified, which is really symbolic of everything we have to go through in order to connect to God, on two levels. So how can we understand the fact that the Torah very clearly says that they, they gave a strange fire, right? Esh zara, that doesn't sound good. Esh zara doesn't sound good. Also, it doesn't sound good that the Torah very explicitly said that they were not commanded to do so. Esh zara asher lo tziva Hashem. A strange or foreign fire that God did not command them to do. How can we read this in a positive way? So the Rebbe says, well... A strange fire, you can read it in two ways. You can read it in a negative way that says that they did something wrong, it wasn't supposed to happen, they were never supposed to initiate it. Or you can say strange in the sense of separate, different. It was a higher fire, not a lower fire. It wasn't that strange or foreign or alien like an outsider is strange to something but like someone who's such an insider, they're, they're strange to everything around them. You can be a stranger in two ways. You can be a stranger by, you can be estranged. When you turn your back to people and you go away, that's negative estrangement. But if you're with people, but then you just go deeply into yourself, into a state of prayer, let's say, of prayer or deep meditation or, or connecting to God, it's also a kind of estrangement to your fellow people, but it's a very positive kind of estrangement. You're not, it's just that you're now communing with God in some way. You're connecting to God. It's, this is what spirituality is all about. So this was, according to this approach, this commentary, the Rebbe says it was Esh Zara in a, in a positive way. And the fact that God didn't command it should also be interpreted in a positive way. They did so voluntarily, Voluntarily means they connected. 
to a place deep down within their souls in which they don't need to be commanded because they want to serve God absolutely voluntarily. So what he says is the following. He says, Nadav and Avihu, following Orachayim HaKadosh's commentary that they, weren't, they didn't sin, they were righteous people, he says, they opened up for us, they taught us, all of us, a very deep lesson. On the external aspect of our hearts, which is symbolized by the external altar, the exterior of the tabernacle, we need to be commanded. Right? Sacrifices means we take our bodies, our physical desires, our materiality, and it's separate, and we need to bring it closer to God. And we need to be commanded, because there's this big part of us that doesn't want to do so. We're invested in our own physicality, in our own material, bodily, and, and earthly soul's desire. So we need to be commanded to do so. But on the deeper level, the level that is symbolized by the, by the inside of the tabernacle and by the inner altar, we don't need to be commanded. Because if we, if we connect to that level within us, there's nothing we want more than to be close to God. We don't need to be commanded. We don't need to make sacrifices, which has, has to do with giving something up in order to come close to God. The word for incense in Hebrew, ktoret, is connected to the word kesher. Right? Shin and taf and also tet, the consonant of sh and the consonant of tu, they go together. You can see this with words when you transition from Hebrew to Aramaic, then many times what it was shin in Hebrew becomes taf or tet in Aramaic. The sh becomes a t. And there are many, many examples of this. So ktoret, the root is ketel, and ketel can be read as kesher, connection. So we're so connected to God on, our, the, on our, the level of our inner hearts, or the inner dimension of our hearts, that we don't need to be commanded. And Aaron was not able to open up this level. He was only able to open up the external level, the level of sacrifices, the level of coming close to God by giving things up, and that's a level we need to be commanded in order to do so. But there was something about his sons, although they were younger and less experienced and not married and didn't have children, and all those things, they were, they were able, maybe, maybe it had to do with them being so young and there's something having something maybe pure about them, they were able to connect to God from a voluntary place. So they were able to go into, go into, the, into the tabernacle and give incense, and give incense in a way that was, they, they didn't need to be commanded to do so. God was very happy with it. But what happened was, and this we're going to have to explain now, it cost them their lives, because they went all the way through this movement of running. They ran to God ecstatically, and God took them. He welcomed them, and, and something very incredible happened. They sanctified the tabernacle on, on the deeper second level. But again, but this was, they opened up something for all of us. And then the rabbi comes full circle with, the, with why is all of this, we're told all of this here in Parashat Achreimot, which is an introduction to the Day of Atonement. He says, really, what they want to teach us is they want to teach us what's happening on the Day of Atonement. What's the work of the Day of Atonement? The work of the Day of Atonement is that 
we all need to be connected to this highest level within us. I mentioned the five prayers. The fifth prayer corresponds to the fifth level of the soul, which is the highest level. It's a level that is in constant unity with God. It's called the level of Yechida, of unity. And it's, it's one with God. This is the fifth level of the soul. And, and so... It, it, it was absolutely connected to the fact that it, it it's an introduction or it 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 serves as a sort of a preface to uh, the instruction given to Aaron as to what to do on the day of atonement. The pre but the preface is not a warning. You should watch out not to do what your sons did. It's the very opposite. You should watch out to do what your sons did. But now we want it to happen without you dying. Right. The, the, the previous reading was, this is what Rashi gives, is that the reason this is mentioned, the reason we're reminded of this story, is that now Aaron is about to go into the holy and the holy of holies, and so he's warned not to do what his sons did. But now, according to this new reading, he's warned, or he's encouraged, to do. You have, your sons taught you that you need to connect to a place in which... You're one with God, and from that place, you don't need to be you don't need to be commanded. You don't need to be to do have sacrifices. You're there, and you need to teach this to all of the Jews, and the Jews need to teach it to all of mankind. That there's this element that in which we are absolutely connected to God, and it's our true desire and our true nature to serve God. We don't need to be commandment. A strange, in a good way, fire, a fire that's so high that it's strange to this world. It doesn't, it doesn't enjoy this world. It doesn't find this world enticing in any way. It's strange in a good way, and God doesn't need to command it. We should also mention the fact that this word zara, zal, zal, strange, could also be read. Same two letters of zal, strange, can be read as zir. Zer means, is one of the words for crown. The tabernacle has many crowns. Zer, Zahav, Saviv, a golden crown that surrounds the altar, that surrounds the... the um, uh, there are several things that, are, that it says that there's a Zer, Zahav, Saviv. And also Zer, if you switch the letters, it becomes Raz. Raz is secret. It's, the, it's one of the synonyms for secret, Again, in a good way, it's the secrets of the Torah, the deep inner dimension of the Torah, is referred to as razin, which means secrets in the plural, or razin the razin, secrets of secrets. So the raz has to do with the zar and with the esh zara. And the crown, of course, is the super, the super conscious, the place of the fifth level of the soul, where it's absolutely one with God. Now, so all this was given by is this very important talk that the Rebbe gave, in which he, ex he expounded upon the Or Chaim Kadosh's interpretation that it wasn't a sin, and then he reconnected it back to the Day of Atonement, and he says they gave us an important lesson. But now something is still missing from this whole story. What's missing is, and we have it a little bit, is that we were now basically taught that the movement of running all the way up to being consumed by divine fire, we turned it from a bad thing into a good thing. By the way, we need to remember there's also the regular interpretations. They, nobody's erasing them out of the books. They're there. 
So obviously this is a risky thing. But now we have this, this other interpretation that says that it can be seen as absolutely a good thing, and they were absolutely righteous and holy, and they opened something up, they opened this level of, of service, this level of connection to God that nobody was able to open before them. And we need to re- be reminded of this every day of atonement, and in many ways, every day, because it, the Day of Atonement is the holiest day, and the Holy of Holies is the holiest place, and the Grand Priest is the holiest of people. But it, but we all this needs to be included in all of the places, all of the moments, and all of the people. We each have a, a little Grand Priest inside of us, and a little Holy of Holies inside of us, and also a certain place that we can call the Day of Atonement. By the way, this is now, who, whoever is studying the Daf Yomi, the page-by-page learning of the Talmud, now it's the tractate Yoma, which is the tractate that has to do with the Day of Atonement. We're nowhere near the Day of Atonement, but here we're learning about it. It, it means that every time of the year we need to be connected to this. So they opened up this amazing thing. But, but what's painful, of course, about all of this is that they died. And the whole purpose of now putting this in the beginning of this parasha, which is named after their dying, after their death, it's to serve as an introduction to the second verse, and the second verse says, but now you, Aaron, need to go in there, and you, and we don't want you to die. And of course, this is the main message of all of it. We want to somehow incorporate what they did, and went through, and experienced, and their desire, with those seven incredible words of the, the, the desire, and the sweetness, and the pleasure, and the love, we want to experience all this without dying. So then, the explanation goes that for us the message is that we absolutely need to have this sense of running, of desire to be one with God. But even as we're doing it, as we're about to go into this path, at the same time, we need to remember that the highest we go we then need to go back here, back to our bodies, back to our houses, our families, our work, our responsibility. The, the return has to be there within the run itself. Only for Nadav and Avihu was there just a run without the return. It's also reminiscent of the fact that Moshe was very unique in being having to separate from his wife in order to be in constant state of prophecy. But it's not for everyone. Everyone else has to marry. And so for us, we need to, we need to be, we need to, as we're doing the running, we need to remember that we also have to return. And the famous example of this is the story of the four sages that went into the orchard. The four sages went into the orchard are four actual sages, uh, Tanaim, who studied the mystical secrets of the Torah. And three of them lost it in some way. One of them went crazy, one of them died, one of them became a heretic. But the fourth one, Rabbi Akiva, made it out in peace. And the question is, how, what, what differentiated him? How did he make it out in peace? And the answer is that if you read the story closely, it doesn't just say that he came out in peace, it says he came in it in peace, and he came out in peace. And saying that he came in in peace appears to be uh, unnecessary, because they all came in okay, right? They, they just didn't come out okay. But they all came in okay. So the, the explanation goes, no. They came in without the commitment to go back out again. They entered the mystical orchard without 
deciding firsthand, uh, not first, uh, without deciding, without having the preliminary decision, commitment, to go back. But Rabbi Akiva did have this commitment. As he was running, in his mind, he was already returning. The day he went into the orchard, the day he started learning the secrets of the Torah, he, 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 made, it, he made like a decision to himself, a commitment, whatever I learn, I'm not going to lose myself in the orchard. I'm going to go back to the regular sane world of, you know, no mysticism and no spirituality. I want to be grounded and connected to this world. And that's what made him survive this mystical orchard. So the same goes for us. We need to, uh, to do this movement, this motion of going in, of running, and at the same time uh, be committed to going back down. Now I want to share with you something that, uh, that is very illustrative of, of, of everything that, I, wanna, that I, I, w- I was really aiming at with everything that I told you so far. So, the story is like this. Two years ago, exactly two years ago, I spent two months in India with my family. We went to a Chabad house, actually two Chabad houses, in two different places in North India, to do what, uh, what people do in Chabad houses, to give classes and to, to do the Passover, Seder, and all this. And all around, there was a lot of Hinduism going on, and also a lot of Buddhism going on. And there are two incidents that I want to, two things that I want to, I want to tell you about. So one is that the second place we went to is a very big, the very is the center really of Tibetan Buddhism. It's in India because they, the the leader of Tibetan Buddhism ran away from from Tibet once it was conquered by China, and now is in a state of exile, and they all live in a little town in the north of India. So I went to their center. I went to their big center because I wanted to see a little bit what's going on there first, firsthand. And now the story is that it's been several decades since the Chinese conquest of Tibet, and it's still under Chinese rule. And for them, they're in a state of exile, and they still long and hope to, uh, to reclaim their land. Now, every once in a while, and I think it happened so far about 160 times, is you have a certain Tibetan monk who, uh, wanting to demonstrate or remind the world about this, uh, this situation, he goes and he burns himself up physically. He pours down kerosene on himself, it's called self-immolation, and, and he burns down. And they have this little museum and they have pictures of them. And so far, so it happens, uh, it happens, you know, several times a year, you know, on average. And they have pictures of them. Nobody would ever say that it's encouraged or that you should do it, because I don't know of any civilization that, including Buddhism, that is pro-suicide. Nobody would tell you that suicide is, is a good thing, that you should do it. However, they come very close to this. They, they come very close to this, because if you go into their, their, their center, you know, the, the temples themselves, it's, a, it's forbidden to go into for a Jew. But, uh, but you don't need to go to the temple, you go into their place, and you see this huge statue of a, of a monk being, burning up. It's a statue, and it's this huge statue. 
And it's also the main thing, it's like the focal point of the museum that they have for their for their tragedy and their and their political struggle. So this image of a burning man is something that you and uh, and one of the things is that it, it creates a tension, you know, you can't it's such a powerful image, it's a, it's a terrifying image. And they made it the central image that they have there. They have this huge statue of a burning monk. And of course it's symbolic of their culture burning and their protest. And But ultimately you have this picture of this monk that is burning up. And I thought to myself, really what this is, is this is an illustration of running without returning. And the the root for this is in Nadav and Avihu. They were consumed by fire. They were consumed by fire. Right? Everything, we believe that everything in the world has its root in Torah. That the Torah is the word of God. That the Torah is the embodiment of godliness in, in, in text form, in story and commandment form. And so, late milta de loremiza beoraita. There's nothing in the world that is not at least subtly alluded to in the Torah. Of course, the Torah doesn't have, almost everything in the world it doesn't have, because it's a small book. But everything you can find a, a subtle allusion to, if you go deeply enough. So, and this allusion is like the, it's like the root of this external phenomena. So if you look, if you think about this image of someone who's burning up, and, and that burned himself up, it, it's not, it was an accident, then of course you can find it, you want to find the root, of, and the root would be, has to be positive. It's within this reading of the story of Nadav and Avihu, that they, it wasn't a sin, and they brought themselves to the divine kiss, and then they were consumed by divine fire, and then they were being taken away, and they actually burned up. Except, in our story, this is something that was only twice in history. Maybe you can say there's something a little bit about maybe Elijah the prophet coming up that's similar to this. But then this whole, this whole idea moves, and this is our parasha, after the, following the death of them, we are now taught, Aaron is taught, we all are taught, that we need to incorporate this passion to burn with love for God into a, a system that also has the element of returning and landing and going back into this world. And what happened in that place in, in India, this Tibetan Buddhist center, is that they really sanctified in many, many ways their running without their returning. And, and this very much has to do with their ideals. Their ideals are that if you want to go, if you want to be really holy, right, our second parsha this week is called Kedoshim has to do with, how, with being holy. If you want to be holy according to what they call holiness, you mustn't marry, and you mustn't have children. Of course, this goes for a minority of, of, of monks, but their spiritual leader never married, and of course doesn't have children, and all the monks don't marry and don't have children, and, and then if, you don't, if you're not up to that, then you should marry and have children, and of course most they, they wouldn't be around if there weren't some people to marry and have children. But their ideal is not to marry, not to have children. And it goes together very much with this picture of a burning, of a burning man. Now this has made its, its way very deeply into, the, into Western culture and what we call now New Age culture. New Age culture is, of course, modern Western civilization trying to reclaim its lost spirituality and looking around for ancient religions and pagan religions and Eastern religions, especially Eastern religions, 
as a source of inspiration for uh, reawakening the spiritual the, the spiritual uh, aspect of, of, of humankind after the West became so materialistic. And the, the biggest New Age festival in the world, the biggest annual New Age festival in the world held in the United States is called the Burning Man Festival. And what they have there is that they have, it's a few days, it's a lot of you know workshops and dances and whatever, and then at some point they have this huge effigy, this huge like, st- um, wooden statue of, of a man, and it's, it's burnt. It's not an actual person, and it's all symbolic, and it's all in order to awaken this, this movement of our own soul burning up with desire to, to connect with something higher. But it's, but the, it's called the Burning Man Festival, and the 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 pinnacle, the peak experience at the end, at the last day, is when they burn up this huge effigy. And this, of course, is it, it's really it came from the east. It came from the same idea that it's there's something about dedicating your life fully and completely just to having your soul come out of your body and connect to to the, to godliness. So that's one story. The other story, and now we're going to tie it all back together to our story. But the other story is that a little before this, um, I, someone from the people in the Chabad house, he was walking around, and suddenly he sees this Tibetan monk, and this wasn't in the place where the, the, all the Tibetan, mon- where the Tibetan mon- monks live. It was another place which made it a, a stranger phenomenon. You see this Tibetan monk walking around, it's not, it was a more, this was a Hindu place, not a Buddhist place. So, and he was walking there, and this guy from the Chabados looks at him, and he says, you look so Jewish. He had this red cape and everything, but you can't hide your face. And he says, you're Jewish, right? And he says, yeah, that's right. And he says, please, please, you have to come to the Chabados. I want you to meet the rabbi of the Chabados. I want you to talk to him. So he brought him. To, and we had a three-hour conversation. We sat together, the two of us, me and him, and we spoke for three hours. He didn't know anything about Judaism. He grew up secular in the United States. And, and he, he fell in love with Buddhism, and at some point he dedicated himself to being a Buddhist monk. He was 50-something years old, never married, never had children, and is not planning on, on, on doing so. Also doesn't have any possessions, doesn't have any money. He went all the way into being a monk, he had a cell phone that he bought for like 15 bucks that he could, you know, connect to because you need, you need a little cell phone. And, but he, he actually doesn't walk around with money and he's, he builds on, on, you know, I think charity. And he goes from, you know, ashram to ashram where he, where he can, you know, spend the night. And he went to India to, to go on this kind of tour to follow the Buddha's footsteps and to all the places that he went to. And then he's going to go back to the United States where he lives and he teaches in some Buddhist monastery. So we had this long conversation, and, and at some point it revolved all around the topic of marriage and having children, because that's maybe the biggest difference you see, or one of the biggest differences, it's not the biggest one. The biggest one is that they don't believe in God. It's, Buddhism is a religion without, it doesn't have a God, and uh, it's just about, you know, spirituality without a God. It's an atheist religion in many ways. So we spoke about many things, but when we spoke about having children, and then he says, ultimately what he said was that Buddhism is all about non-attachment. You don't want to be attached to the material world. 
So you don't attach yourself to a woman, and you don't attach yourself to children, and you don't attach yourself to a physical property. You don't own a house or own anything other than the clothes you wear and the $15 cell phone and or whatever it costs. And, and if he would marry and have children, he would be attached to them. And then he wouldn't, able to, he wouldn't be able to meditate the way he meditates right now because he would be obligated to take care of the children, obviously. And so it doesn't, it doesn't matter everything that happened in the conversation. What matters is that I wrote about it to Rabbi Ginsburg. And then he said some very, very interesting things about all of this. And this really connects to this class and also to this picture of the burning man, and which, again, you can do it in a, in a very physical, ter- terrifying way. You can also do it by just living a life that's all based on running and not returning. Now, the more I thought about this, so I thought, you know, this concept, uh, before I go into what Rebbe Ginsburg says, said, he, I, I thought about... Um, what does it mean, like this concept of non-attachment? Is it absolutely foreign to Judaism? No, it isn't. Uh, we also talk about being connecting to God and being willing to let go of everything in order to love God. So then Rabbi Ginsburg really focused me on the, on the exact place we should look at this and, this, and then it becomes very beautiful. And this is the ultimate message of this class. If you look into the Shema Israel, Shema Israel is the main sort of credo of Judaism. Hero Israel, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, God is our, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And then it says you should love your God with all of your soul and with all of your heart and with all of your might. So what does this mean? Shema Yisrael is all about running, the run of the soul. It's very much about non-attachment. What does it mean to love God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, and with all of my might? So there are several explanations, but one of the explanations given is the following. It says that there are three things that everyone finds the most important. It's called Bane Chaye Umezone. Your children, your life, your health, and your belongings, your, your, your money, your property. Bane, children or family. Chaye, your life, your, your health. And mezone, which is your livelihood. So, Bechol Levavcha, Bechol Levavcha, Bechol Modecha corresponds to this. Bechol Levavcha is, you should love God with, even if it means giving up what you love the most, which is your spouse and your children. Shema Yisrael is all about, if God would take away my spouse and my children, I would still love him. This means loving God with all of my heart. If God forbid they should be taken away from me, I love him with all of my heart, which means I'm willing, if necessary, to give up my, my spouse and my children. Bechol nafshecha is even if it takes away your life. Chayei. Bechol nafshecha is even if this is Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, when he was executed by the Romans, he said, Shema Israel, and his students told him, how can you do this? He said, I, I always wondered if I, was able, if, I will, if I will ever be able to, to 
love God so much that I would still love Him despite dying. And now I have this chance. So loving God with all of your nefesh, with all of your soul, means you're willing to give up your life. And then finally, it's Bechol Me'odecha is with all of your belongings. So it's Mezone. Me'odecha is your money, your belongings. You should give, you should be willing to give everything up. So this is very much Buddhist, right? It sounds very much Buddhist. That you, you, and also, by the way, Nadav and Avihu, they didn't have a wife, they didn't have children. They didn't have any clothes on, according, which is like your belongings. And then, finally, they also lost their lives. So they really loved God. However, after, and then we, we do like this, right? We cover our eyes and we forget about this world. And this is like this non-attachment. You know, it turns out that most Buddhist teachers in the world right now, outside of the actual original Buddhism, in the Western world, most Buddhism teachers are Jews, more than 50%. And what they're looking for is this. They're looking for, maybe if they would know this, they would be more interested in Judaism, but they, what they're looking for is, with all of your love, with all of your soul, with all of your might, with all of your heart, your soul, your might. But then, after we take off our eyes and we finish my Israel and we finish davening, we need to go return and go back to our bodies, to our spouse and children, to our belongings, and make this world a dwelling place for God. And without dying, and while well, absolutely being here. And then Rabbi Ginsburg said the following, he says, this Buddhist Jew that you met, he doesn't kill himself. He doesn't burn himself. He doesn't kill himself in any way. He is. He has a body, and yet he meditates and he tries to overcome the body and be connected to this divine spiritual space. So, the the Torah is all about giving us trials. You know, we pray that we don't have any nisyonot. Al tivi Please, God, do not. Uh, put me in a situation in which I'm tried, in which I'm, I'm put in a trial, because it's hard. But but there are some trials that all of life is a trial. So the, what is life's biggest trial? Is let's see you connect to God with a body and with a family and with physical belongings. So the Buddhist does it anyway with his body. He has a body, and but he's working very hard to distract himself from his hunger and his thirst and his and his tiredness, and to meditate. So if you would have a family and children, and a house, and a mortgage, and whatever you need to have in order to take to, to really live the, this world also, not just the, the higher worlds, then your meditation, or prayer, or service of God, or whatever it is you call your spiritual connection to what's above, it becomes even more, even greater. Because it's, you're not just overcoming your own body, you're overcoming your, your desire, your innate desire to be with your wife and your children, and your innate desire to be with, to take care of your belongings. But no, you need to overcome them and love God, and love God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your might. And, and we need to have both movements. And the movement of running becomes greater the more you're connected to this world. And then when you, when you 
go all the way up, you need to go back down and take responsibility for, for everything in this world. So it was a very beautiful way of looking at, at, this, at this whole situation, that you have people who, are, who don't have a family, don't have physical belongings, ideally, if they go all the way. And then you see that if they really, really go all the way, and they would never outright say you should do this, but they end up somewhat idolizing this, is that they actually end up by actually burning themselves. Some of them, few of them. But this is, this is idolized, this is put on a pedestal. So we see in Nadav and Avihu, the root of this desire, of the burning man festival, of the burning self-immolating monk, of the monk who doesn't self-immolate himself physically, but he does so by not marrying and not having properties. And we see that this does have a place. And this, what we had to have the Orachayim HaKadosh and the Rebbe's explanation that there's something extremely positive and holy and, and important about what Nadav and Avihu did and what they opened up for us. But then we need to incorporate this within a, a, a theology, within a lifestyle, within a way of looking at the world, of serving God, that also goes back into this world and doesn't die. Just like it says in the second verse here, that Aaron is not supposed to die. So really what this, this class is about is that there is, there should be this kind of inner burning man within us. There should be this inner burning man within us that longs and wants to burn with desire to be with God. But then we also need to cool him down and to pour water all over him and to make him come down into this world and marry and have children and have a house and and be and work with other people and share their difficulties and identify with their difficulties and bring the divine light into all the corners of the earthly realm with identification with the earthly realm, with, with human problems and human needs and human frailties and human uh, and the human attachment to this world. So the burning man is, doesn't attach himself to anything, and we want to reattach him, cool him down, bring him down, back into this world to marry and have a family and have a house. So may we, may we marry to see all the burning people, all the people whose heart is burning with desire to go all the way ecstatic, into spirituality to say, way to go, way to go. This ecstasy is amazing. It's very high. You, 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 you are a child of Nadav and Avihu, but you don't. But they already did. We don't need any more Nadav and Avihu to actually be consumed. They, they did it for all of us, and now we we don't. No one else. No one else has to do this anymore. We they demonstrated what it means to be consumed, so that now we can learn how to be consumed and at the same time to return and go back to our bodies and our lives and and then you can ha- and then your fire burns in a way that it's light within vessels it's fire but it's also water and it's this burning desire but it's also normal living in this world so this is our class for this week's parasha <laughs>